I just want you to know it's the same at Bent Tree. When you want something done, ask the women. <laughs> our, our gals are the same way. We, uh, we depend on them to care for missionaries and to fund different projects and to be engaged in serving the body. It's always uh, the women who are first up. So I'm thankful for you at IBC. Let's pray. Uh, Lord, uh, would you teach through me now? Would you um, show Jesus to us? Would you uh, remind us of the victory that is coming and the newness that is coming? Would you remind us that you have the power to change sin and sorrow and to remove it forever? Thank you that the snake will always eat dust, even in the new heavens and the new earth. But he won't be able to harm us anymore. Thanks to Jesus who put his foot on that serpent's head at the cross and crushed it like a grape. And we will feel the effects of that in the newness of what's ahead. We love you and we thank you. And we ask you to teach us this morning. Give my sisters ears to hear, hearts to obey, hands and feet that are quick to run, to run, to do the things that God asks us to do. I pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. So over the weekend now that I... In fact, I don't even have weekends anymore. When you're retired every day... Is kind of like Saturday Monday, Saturday Tuesday, Saturday Wednesday, everything. <laughs> I'm so glad for church because it breaks up the week. So Sunday is always Sunday. But it is kind of funny to adjust to a schedule that is a little bit different. But I was watching a movie called All the Light We Cannot See. It was a great book. And uh, it's a, a movie. And it's set in World War II France. And uh, it's a story of a blind girl and and uh, the search for this gem called the Sea of Flames. So it's just a beautiful story, and if you can watch it, I recommend it. And it uh, reminded me and got me thinking about World War II because the town that they're in, which is on the coast of France, right on the ocean, is really bombed out of existence. Um, and so uh, the Allies are bombing it because they're trying to rescue France, right? So <laughs> the Germans are bombing, the Allies are bombing, everything's being bombed, and people are suffering, very much like what we're seeing in the Middle East. So Hamas is bombing, Israel is, people are caught, right? And towns and cities are wasted and lay in ruins, and so do people. And usually women and children pay the greatest cost. But it got me thinking about how do people come back from that devastation in a material way? Like, how do they rebuild an entire city? Like, Berlin was leveled. And how do they rebuild it? Like, how long does it take? So I was doing this deep, funny, nerdy dive into that. Like, how do people rebuild as a society? And how do people rebuild in their physical geography? So that's the introduction I have here. You have it in front of you. So in 1945, at the end of World War II, um, has been called Year Zero. So that's what their nickname for 1945 was. All the devastated countries called it Year Zero because they had nothing. Isn't that interesting? So much of Europe and Asia lay in ruins. Because remember, it wasn't just Europe. It was Japan, and there were parts of China, and all Guam, and all of those uh, islands were devastated. 
it lay in ruins. The numbers are hard to grasp. 60 million dead, 25 million of them were Soviet citizens. That's incredible. We hardly ever talk about the cost to the Soviet Union in Second, in Second World War. A new word, genocide, entered the language to deal with the murder of six million of Europe's Jews by the Nazis. That's when the word genocide came in. Factories and workshops lay in ruins everywhere, and fields, forests, and vineyards were stripped bare. Many Europeans survived on less than 1,000 calories a day. In the Netherlands, they ate tulip bulbs. In Berlin alone, an estimated 70% of housing had been obliterated. I saw a figure 600,000 apartments were destroyed in Berlin, and Berlin is a big city. The four horsemen of the apocalypse, pestilence, war, famine, and death, so familiar during the Middle Ages, appeared again in the modern world. After such calamity, how does a society rebuild materially and morally? That question can be asked of the Jewish exiles returning from Babylon in the 8th century. This is our context for Isaiah. How will they rebuild their ravaged hearts and the society that they create, they have an opportunity, right? The ravaging and the devastation provides an opportunity for a rebuilding. So how will they do it? What will they do? How does that come about? Uh, just a little side note, it's not in your notes, but do you know women, not almost single-handedly, but much of the rubble of Berlin was cleaned up by women. Same thing in London. So they employed housewives, because back in that day in the 40s and 50s, women usually didn't work. And so they got housewives and kids with buckets, and much of the rubble was cleaned up by, guess what? Irving Bible Church women. You know what I mean? Like, they go to the women's Bible study, and they say, girls, you have a bucket? Bring a scone and a bucket, and let's clean up Berlin, right? Like, that's how it got done, by ordinary people who had survived everything. So let's look at the what. Isaiah 43:66, which is this second section of the book, brings comfort, deliverance, and a promise of new heavens and a new earth after the Babylonian exile. The prophet laments in Isaiah 63:7 to 65:25, and the Lord responds. So he laments and God responds. So 65 is God's response to Isaiah's prayer. So I wanted to put that in context. I'm not teaching 63, I'll just hit the highlights, but I want you to see that section in its context. Isaiah is going to pray a prayer, and it'll be interesting for you to see what I, I'm coming to the conclusion. It's still a little squishy in my mind, but I'm coming to the conclusion that it's very much like the prayer of Jonah in Jonah chapter two, and I'll explain why in a minute. And then 65 is God answering that prayer. So 65 isn't just a chapter of a book, it's God's answer to a prayer. Does that make sense? Okay, so it's good to have that context in. So the question is, how will they rebuild their society? How are they going to come out of this devastation? The temple is destroyed, the city is in ruins, they're in ruins, and how do they come back from that? The section begins with hope in 63, 1 through 6. We're not going to look at that, but do read it. It talks about who is he that comes up and his garments are dipped with blood. It's a picture of the Messiah. I know that doesn't sound really great, but it's the blood of redemption. But it's this beauty. Who comes up from Basra? 
with his clothes dipped in blood. It's a picture of the victorious Messiah. So this whole section starts with hope, and it's going to end with hope at the end of 65, and we'll look at that uh, today. So let's look at the lament very quickly because I want to set the context for you. It's from 63.7 to 64.12. You'll see that down on number one. And Isaiah laments. Now his lament, that means he's crying out, and it's usually over an injustice. There are uh, psalm 13 is a classic lament psalm. If you want to read a psalm of lament, that's a classic one. So you can look at it, but it has a complaint and an appeal and other things in it, and that's what you'll see Isaiah does. Isaiah's lament represented the complaint of God's exiled people. That's important because I don't think this is Isaiah just praying. He's kind of acting out in prayer what the exiles are probably praying and thinking and lamenting. So this is not Isaiah the prophet praying his prayer. It's him standing in their place praying the prayer that they would pray. That's an important distinction. The lament structure includes a reminiscence. So he goes back over the history of things, and you can read that in verses... um, Verses 7 through 14. And then his complaint is in 63, 15 through 19. Then there's confession of sin, declarations of trust, and that takes a long time from 63, 19b to 64, 6. So this is the structure of his lament. And then he makes his appeal in verses 7 through 12. And that's part of it I have down there for you. Look under that. Your sacred cities have become a wasteland. Even Zion is a wasteland, Jerusalem a desolation, our holy and glorious temple where our ancestors praised you has been burned with fire, and all that we treasured lies in ruins. After all this, Lord, will you hold yourself back? Will you keep silent and punish us beyond measure? So I'm developing this message for you And I'm reading this, and I'm going, hmm, something feels fishy to me. Because Isaiah, for the entire book, if you can remember back in the darker section, 1 through 39, he's taking people to task for their sinfulness and their deceitfulness, and their self-righteousness, and all the things that they've been doing that has brought on this exile that they are experiencing later on. I don't think this is Isaiah's prayer. He's praying it. But I think he's acting as the exiles and what they actually think. Look at this prayer again. Your sacred cities have become a wasteland. Even Jerusalem, Zion, is a wasteland. Jerusalem is a desolation. Now look at 11. Our holy and glorious temple where our ancestors praised you has been burned with fire. And all that we treasured. Have you read the first 39 chapters of Isaiah? Lies in ruins. After all this, Lord, after all the glory and the praise that we've given you, after all this, will you hold yourself back? Will you keep silent? Will you really punish us this much? Does that sound fishy to you now? 
that I'm saying it that way? Okay. I know, you can be skeptical, and you should be skeptical. You should read the Bible on your own and make decisions, inform decisions. But whenever I get that Holy Spirit like, ooh, fish, then I got I to gotta really bore down on it. And I got my answer in God's answer. So look at number two. Isaiah laments, I'm putting forth to you a decision that you need to make about this text. Either this is Isaiah's prayer, and he's praying it for himself, like this is his honest prayer, this is what he thinks. Or Isaiah is saying, I'm kind of channeling what the exiles think. I'm taking that position, you can take the other position, commentators are split, but look at God's answer. There is a tone shift. Let me read this to you. This is um, the New International Commentary of the Old Testament, commonly known by Bible nerds as Nicot. And this is what Dr. Oswald says about this. The tone of this verse, meaning the beginning of this section in 65.1, differs noticeably from that of the preceding lament. For want of better terms, it is the difference between immediate and literary. The lament is couched in beautiful, elusive language, while this verse and those following are blunt and to the point. God is blunt and to the point, while this whole long lament that Isaiah has just been giving is very poetic and beautiful and pictorial and has allegories in it. It's lovely. Something smells like fish. One might read a degree of impatience in God's words. God could almost be saying that high-flown rhetoric is fine in its place, but not when one has missed the point. And the point is that the charges addressed against him, God, are wrong. Israel's problem is not the distance of God or his silence in the face of penitent cries. Indeed, God was answering before anyone was asking and was revealing himself before anyone was looking. The truth is they don't look to God. The truth is they're not asking for him. And that's what got them in trouble in the first place. And so God answers. And I think this is much like, um, I preached a series on Jonah, and I learned a lot. And the common teaching of Jonah is that in chapter 2, verses 1 through 10, he prays a prayer inside the belly of the fish. And the way I've always heard that preached, the maybe handful of times I've heard it preached, is that this is when Jonah trusts in Jesus. He gets saved in the belly of the fish. And that's why God has the fish squirt him out so that he can go and do his ministry. And I think that's completely wrong. Because if you dig down into the Hebrew, and I don't know Hebrew, so I am indebted to all the scholars. And I had conversations with Dr. Joanna Hoyt down at DTS, who's a Hebrew scholar, and wrote the commentary that I used mostly for Jonah and had her walk me through that text. And here's what she says. Jonah's use of passive verbs, this is his penitent prayer, where he gets saved, 
Jonah's use of passive verbs as well as personal pronouns. 23 personal pronouns in his prayer in the English text. I, me, I, me, my, 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 me, I, I. Did I mention it? I. Like 23 times. Reveals his heart amidst a pious sounding prayer that showcases his self-righteous attitude. I think that's what's going on here that we've had from 63 and 64 now, Isaiah kind of taking the role of what the exiles are thinking in their hearts about God and their own position, and they're going to go right back in to the city of Jerusalem with the same challenges. Because seriously, their view of God needs to be rebuilt, and seriously, their view of themselves needs to be rebuilt, not just that city. It is human nature that in times of um, trial, tribulation, hurt, and misunderstanding, human beings are lax to see their own fault, our own false thinking, our own, our own um, part in it, and find someone else to blame. If you're married, think of the last time you had words with your beautiful husband. Unless you're really schooled at having good arguments, our first response is typically to blame shift and to gloss over ourselves. It takes a minute, doesn't it, for us to truly see ourselves and go, I blew it. I'm proud. I was the B word. I'm too sarcastic. I, it takes us a minute, doesn't it? Does it take you a minute? It takes me a minute. Maybe two minutes, I have to be honest. It takes me a minute, because I have nobody at home pushing back on me. All I have is my dog, and he just loves me unconditionally. So I have to seek outside help, where people that I know and trust can look at me and go, You're, you need help, <laughs> sister. This is what's going on here. They have been stripped through the exile. They come out of the exile with the synagogue system. So the whole worship and the temple and all that kind of stuff, a lot of that stuff is changing. So there's, there's some change, but a lot is the same. 70 years, and they still need help. Let's go on. Here's what God says about them. Here's their rebellious. This is how he answers the prayer. Oh, God. We love you, we thank you, we praise you, we treasure you, we cherish you. Will you punish us forever? Don't you think God would respond differently if he knew it was a penitent heart? Don't you think? Listen to how he responds. All day long, I open my arms to a rebellious people. That's his first darn sentence. That should give you a clue 
of what's actually taking place here, but they follow their own evil paths and their own crooked schemes. All day long, they insult me to my face. I made the New Living because it makes it even better. If you read it in the message, it's even better. All day long, they insult me to my face by worshiping idols in their sacred gardens. They burn incense on pagan altars. At night, they go out among the graves, worshiping the dead. They eat the flesh of pigs and make stews with other forbidden foods. Yet they say to each other, don't come too close or you will defile me. I'm holier than you. These people are a stench in my nostrils, an acrid smell that never goes away. Like if you cook broccoli in your oven today, you're going to smell that for days. You'll have gas just from the smell. <laughs> right? You cook fish, whatever you're making. Like you, that's, God, you're like, I cooked broccoli and I can't get you out of my nose. If they were truly penitent, if Isaiah's prayer truly represented a penitent people, God would surely answer in a different way, don't you think? That's why you've got to pay attention to the Holy Spirit when he tells you, dig a little deeper. Read that again. Think about it. Studying the Bible takes questions. I like to say to the gals at Bentry, if you don't, talk to your Bible, it won't talk to you. So you have to interrogate it. Why does God answer the prayer in 65 in such a vicious way? He's not that way. He's, that's not his character. But he, he pretty much is blunt, just like Dr. Oswald said. He comes out with a blunt answer, right? So that's pretty, I want to know why. Same with Jonah. If you read 2, 1 through 10, I think the whale was so sick in his stomach from Jonah's self-righteousness, he had to burp him out as fast as he could. I think the whale was sick to his stomach with Jonah in there. I think it's a picture to us of Israel on mission living in such a way as the other nations would be drawn to her, and she ran away from that and did her own thing. And then she played at being penitent. And then God went, into exile you go. Because your self-righteousness is a smell in my nostrils that cannot go away. These are hard words. But don't fathers and mothers say the truth to their children? If you don't have a truth-telling set of parents to guide you, you're never going to grow up. But he doesn't end there. Right after that, he starts talking about a remnant. So everybody, see, the Jews were thinking, if we survive the exile, we're all good. Surviving kind of gives us the credentials as God's people. The credentials have not changed. Survival has not become the credential. Salvation has become the credential, always. It's always the same. Those who trust and those who try. Those who trust and those who don't. That's always been the way. 
Trusting by faith has always been the way to align yourself to the living God. Look what he says. He says, I will bring forth descendants from Jacob, that's Israel, the upper 10 tribes, you learned about them, and from Judah, those who will possess my mountains, that's an idea of Jerusalem. So you have the, the northern kingdom, the southern kingdom, and Jerusalem itself. My chosen people will inherit them. Who are his chosen people? The people who trust him. Not all of Israel. Israel is his chosen people in the sense of bringing the Messiah, but it's the people who trust him. It's the remnant. It's the ones, the remnant who believe. And there will my servants live. Sharon will become a pasture for flocks. So Sharon is actually the uh, way you pronounce it. It was an uninhabited, neglected, flat plain intersected by three ridges. And it was um, called an alluvial plain, which means there's water in it. It's like water in your basement. All right? And these three ridges that are in this plain, prevent the water from flowing out to the sea. So when it rains a lot, it gets swampy. In, the, in Sharon, the plains of Sharon are this kind of creepy, forested, swampy place. And in the rainy season, it's specifically so. So look what he says. Swampy, uninhabited, neglected Sharon will become a pasture for flocks. Isn't that a really different picture? away from the creepy forest into the pasture for flocks, right? And the valley of Achor, which means trouble or taboo, read Joshua chapter 6 for that story. And Achor, or trouble, a resting place for herds for my people who seek me. And then he says the redo. And this is the beautiful part. This is the part we love to preach because this is the good news. <laughs> this is uh, 65, 17 through 25. God has the power to banish sin and sorrow forever. In that, I am so grateful. If you've sinned recently like I have, this is good news. If you have sorrow today, sorrow about the past, sorrow in the present, Sorrow when you look into the future. If you're carrying someone else's sorrow, God alone has the power to cancel those two things out of existence. And he will do it. He will do it. Imagine how these words started to affect the people coming out of exile. See, the word is behold, Behold, you know, whenever angels show up, it's like, behold, you know, it's like, okay, I'm really talking now. See, I will create first a new heavens and a new earth. The former things will not be remembered, nor they will, will they come to mind. But be glad and rejoice forever in what I will create, for I will create, number two, Jerusalem to be a delight. So we're going to rebuild that city. It's going to be a delight. And three, the people. I'm going to rebuild the people. I'm going to rebuild them materially, and I'm going to rebuild them morally, spiritually into a new person, just like the question I asked at the beginning. Who rebuilds the people and who rebuilds the place? God will, 
Verse 19, I will rejoice over Jerusalem and take delight in my people. The sound of weeping and crying will be heard in it no more. And that deserves a hallelujah. Come on. Yeah. I once knew this Irish preacher named John Clunas, and he used to preach. He was this gigantic man, probably close to seven feet tall and maybe seven feet wide. And he had an Irish accent, and I can listen to that all day long. Can't you listen to Acts, Jill Briscoe, all the people had the beautiful accents? And he would lean over the pulpit, and he goes, I think that deserves a hallelujah. <laughs> and you know how he'd answer back? Hallelujah, like we were all Irish, right? Because that's kind of, you felt like you had to. God does things new, and number two, God undoes old things. God undoes what sin did. There's so many reversals in this section. Here's what Oswald says, God will rejoice because his compassionate heart won't be wrenched and torn by those things that wrench and tear ours. Untimely death, futile work, impermanence and upheaval, think of the Middle East right now, and children born to tragedy. Millions and millions of children are being born to tragedy today. God puts it all to end. And then I love that note, verse 25. The serpent still eats dust at the end. The wolves are taken care of. The lions, you know, are eating like cows, you know. And, and the serpent, you know, he, he gets reversed. He can't harm us any longer, but he's still eating dust. Aren't you glad about that? That serpent never comes up off the ground. He's in his squished existence. No teeth. Jesus crushed his head at the cross. Amen to that. So what? So here's my dilemma. I'm thinking, how is this an encouragement to people in the 8th century coming out of exile? Because we look at the new heavens and new earth, right? And Sue takes you there in the lesson, Revelation 21 and 22, because we're post-Jesus and looking forward to the future of a second coming, right? So of course, new heavens and new earth, that's cool. Like, I get that. Now they're in the 8th century looking forward. They don't even know to who. The Messiah, some figure, they don't even have that right. How are these verses that we cling to also appeal to the people back in Isaiah's day? Because it has to be relevant to them, right? And let me just read this little article here. It says, God's promise, I won't read the whole thing, so I know I'm like nine minutes over, nine seconds over, so. God's promise in Isaiah 65, 17 through 25 begins with the statement, for behold, I will create a new heavens and a new earth. This is not in your notes, I'm just reading this. And the former shall not be remembered nor come to mind. This promise is repeated in Isaiah 66, 22 and 24. What kind of new heavens and new earth does the prophet Isaiah describe? And how should we reconcile them with the new heaven and new earth of Revelation 21? So this is what this guy says. I think it's good. In the promise of Isaiah 65, it was made for physical Israel after the Babylonian exile. The passage should be placed in its context. Isaiah's prophetic ministry in the 8th to 7th century 
and his prophecies on Babylonian captivity and return. You have to read your Bible. Somebody said you have to read it literally and literarily, right? You gotta put it in its context and then you have to deal with the form that it's written in. So we always gotta be thinking, what did the people in that day and time get from what Isaiah was writing or saying? Two, the conditional fulfillment of the promise depended on Israel's obedience. So the new heavens and new earth of Revelation 21 are unconditional. They're going to come because of what God is going to do. But the rebuilding of Jerusalem and the rebuilding of the society after the exile was conditional on the, pro- on the, the people seeking God. Remember, he says, I'm going to call out of you a remnant who will seek me. It's conditional. Jerusalem does get rebuilt, but the society, honestly, by the time you get to Jesus' day, is the same. There are believers there, people who seek the Lord, but it's not fundamentally changed like the new heavens and the new earth will be in the future. Everything is not removed. And then he points out, in case of Israel's future, the prophecy So if Israel fails after the exile into Jerusalem in that day, rebuilding it and rebuilding the society in that day, if they fail, which they do, the prophecy points forward to the new heavens and the new earth after the millennium. So now we look at what happens in the 8th century and they're not going to be able to trust him. (laughs) They say they're changed, but they're really not. Just like sometimes we say, I've been transformed. I still struggle, don't you? So then we say this promise for its full fulfillment has to happen in the future when it's out of our hands and it's in his hands to do. All right. Now what? Remember this. I'm going to close here, and I probably won't say all the other things. Can I? Do I have two more minutes? Is it okay? I hear the rolling back there. Okay. Remember uh, the movie The Passion of the Christ? So I'm going to tell you my favorite scene. There were so many good scenes in that movie, and there were hard scenes in that movie, but I watch it every Good Friday. It's like, don't ever want to forget. Jesus is going down the Via Dolorosa, right? And he's disfigured beyond imagining. And he's carrying his cross, and he falls into the dirt, right? Remember that scene? It's like slow motion falling. The the cross is bumping, and it falls over. And his mother has been following him at a distance. And she watches him fall. And remember that beautiful little scene? She remembers him as a little boy. And he falls down, and she runs to him. She runs to him, Yeshua, Yeshua. And she holds him and she comforts him. And she says to him in Aramaic, I'm here. I'm here. And that memory puts her in action. She goes to her grown son, her firstborn son. And she calls out to him, Yeshua, I'm here. And she bends down and she tries to hold his face to tell him I'm here to comfort him. And he looks up with one eye because everything is so beaten. And he says in Aramaic, see, mother, I make all things new. 
I make all things new. This new heavens and new earth is called the new creation. You and I are called the new creation. We are part of this idea of the newness that is coming. We are the foretaste as Christians of the new creation that's coming. That's why you're so important. Not just because getting saved is so important, but because you are an evidence of what is coming. Your newness, your Jesusness, your redemption and transformation from the old to the new. 2 Corinthians 5.17. All things are passed away. Behold, all things become, say it with me, new. You're part of Isaiah 65, this newness that's coming. You are the foretaste. You're like the window sample in Macy's. You see the outfit, you buy the outfit. You are the mannequin. You are the lady in the beautiful dress that helps everybody see the beautiful reality that's available to them. And then Jesus in Revelation 21, one through five actually says, see, I am making all things new. You can read it there. Here's my conclusion. How can hearts and societies rebuild materially and morally to go back to the beginning? Only by God's transforming, intervening love as demonstrated by Jesus. Our future is certain. God will prevail. Hallelujah. He will make all things new. The kingdom of grace we enjoy today will be followed by the kingdom of glory, reflecting the sinless conditions of our Edenic home, the garden, where humanity and all creation flourish together in the manifest presence of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Put down there Hebrews 12, 22 to 24 as a cross-reference. Read kind of the same concept, but some, what it's going to be like and the things that are going to be there. So... My quick question, I don't even know if we have, because I'm seven minutes over. Can I ask a question? Okay, I'm getting the chiefs. Okay, here's my question. What are you looking forward to most in the new creation? What are you looking forward to the most in the new creation? What being made new is going to mean most to you?